Awesome. Well, thanks everybody for coming out this morning. I'm uh, Wesley Lowry at the uh, Washington Post. Um, and, you know, this is such a uh, timely conference and this is going to be a really timely panel um, because of, as this was referenced in the earlier panels, the, the moment we're having, you know, currently in the United States of America as, as we discuss issues of policing and of justice and as we look to balance, um, you know, supporting law enforcement as well as holding law enforcement accountable and figuring out what that means um, as we face a time where, uh, you know, killings at the hands of police officers are under um, unprecedented scrutiny, as well as you're seeing several cities in the United States of America that are seeing upticks in violent crime and trying to balance and figure out what that looks like and, and how to have that conversation in a way uh, that is uh, both fair but also productive. Um, meanwhile, um, you know, we're also starting to see a push for better data collection um, to hopefully inform this conversation in a way that um, it hadn't been previously. Um, and so we've got a really distinguished panel today to, to talk about uh, you know, this concept of police accountability um, and to open up some questions. And so what I'm going to do um, is I'm going to shut up um, after I introduce them and let the people who know much more than me um, <laughs> to talk about it. Um, but I'll, I'll go ahead and give you know quick, brief uh, introductions and let them actually run down the more relevant parts of their bios. Um, and so to my right, your left, I have Dr. Cynthia Lum, uh, director of the Center for Evidence-Based Crime Policy. Uh, Next to me, I've got Major Max Guerin of the uh, Dallas Police Department. Um, and to his left, we've got Professional Emer or Samuel Walker, a professor emeritus of criminal justice at the University of Nebraska at Omaha. And for reporters who cover this, a uh, go-to uh, source of information and insight. And so it's great to be on the panel with all three of you. Um, and so essentially what we're going to do is, uh, you know, I think each panelist has prepared some remarks and some presentations, and then uh, we'll facilitate with some kind of interactive question and answers after everyone's had a chance to speak. And so, uh, Major Karen, do you want to take us off? Excellent. Well, we appreciate that great presentation from Major Garen. Uh, <laughs> the first time that being, you know, technologically, you know, backward uh, actually has some advantage to it. Uh, anyway, uh, good morning. I appreciate the... Uh, invitation from the Cato Institute to, to, to speak here. Uh, I should say, as a lifelong and unapologetic liberal Democrat, uh, essentially all of my friends are lifelong liberal Democrats. And when I told them I was going to Washington to speak at the Cato Institute, some of them you know, kind of you know, gave me this look, you know, like I was going over to the other side or something. Uh, uh, actually, I'm not going over the other side at all. The, we share a... Uh, a a libertarian uh, concern about uh, the overreach of policing on issues, issues of militarization, of surveillance, of uh, um, civil asset forf uh, forfeiture, as we talked about. So uh, I feel very much uh, at home here. Uh, I, I actually do have uh, some conservative friends. Uh, I just can never remember the other guy's name, though. So, 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 uh, anyway. Uh, you you have the the outline for my remarks, and that is the my remarks are actually taken from a law review article uh, published in George Mason Civil Rights Law Review uh, a couple of years ago, and that is currently being revised uh, in cooperation with the Cato Institute, and will appear in. I think we're, we're stripping out all the apparatus of law reviews where, where you have to footnote you know every other sentence uh, and make it more readable to the general public, and I'll have a chance to. Uh, uh, updated. Essentially, what I have proposed is a, a state-level equivalent to the federal uh, civil rights effort, the, the, the pattern and practice uh, litigation that's in the special litigation section uh, of the uh, Justice Department. Now, if you don't like that effort, we're, we're really uh, just on different wavelengths at all. Uh, if you sort of like it and think it'd be better at the state level, well, then you'll really like uh, what I do. Uh, Anyway, the, uh, what, what concerned me is, is on, on that re regard, the, the need for some, some alternative remedies for uh, police abuse problems. And, and again, all the events uh, since Ferguson in, uh, a year ago and last week's events in, in Chicago, uh, uh, we have some very serious issues of police abuse. And again, as I... Uh, Already mentioned, there are other issues related to search and seizure, you know, surveillance, militarization, uh, and so on. Uh, so, what 
my concern arises from the fact that there are certain limitations on keeping this a, a, a federal action. The special litigation section of the Justice Department uh, is very small. They can only do a few cases. And I think they, they have chosen a number of, of, of uh, cases to, to make a point, uh, a broader point that has general uh, application. The, uh, the federal effort is also subject to uh, the political winds, depending on who happens to be president. The litigation section was very active under the Clinton years. It basically walked away from it under the George W. Bush administration and then came back with a greater force uh, under President Obama. But those, you know, uh, the vagaries of politics uh, affect uh, that, uh, that effort. But as, a, as another sort of general point, if we locate it at the state, it is closer to the people. And I think there are all sorts of, of advantages. Uh, now, in terms of legal authority for this action, I think it's, it's, there are relevant sections in all state constitutions which can justify this. There were actually were two prior examples. One was Riverside, California, uh, a number of years ago, and the other was a small town of Wallkill, uh, New York, where the state attorney general uh, undertook uh, action to, to investigate and, and, and then uh, require reforms on, on police procedures in those uh, particular communities. Uh, but I think we'd be much better off with, with a state enabling statute. This would strengthen the authority and would also uh, specify. And there are certain great benefits uh, to the, the legislative process of enacting such a law. There could be a public debate over police practices in each and every state, at least every state that, that chose to, where such a bill was, was introduced. I think this would, enhances the democratic process. The police have their chance to make their case. Uh, people who feel aggrieved by the police uh, have a chance to make their case. Experts uh, can testify and so on. I think this is, is all to the good if we believe in, in a democratic society where the people really do participate uh, in that. And I think it, it will, will help build uh, confidence in the end result, assuming it results in something along the lines that I have, have proposed. Uh, one of the, I think one of the problems with the, the current you know, federal effort located in the special litigation section, it, it sometimes appears that you know, these lawyers from Washington sort of parachute in. Uh, and you know, there's this, this kind of a, you know, a fed, uh, federal intervention. Locating it at the state level, uh, I think, would help to overcome that. Uh, and then the other advantage is, is the state law can be drafted in narrow or broad terms. And I would argue we'd be a lot better off if we have a, a, a broader one. Uh, we can, it can be drafted to, to address uh, a, a wider range of police problems. It doesn't have to be restricted just to um, constitutional issues, as is the case in, in the federal uh, statute. And so, and so these, in a, it could specifically address issues of surveillance. It could, could be addressed to, to, to address um, issues of militarization uh, uh, so that there is, is some state level control on civil asset forfeiture. Uh, all of these you know, could be specified in the statute and, and the agency uh, would have authority to investigate uh, uh, alleged abuses uh, of that. Um, now, this opens the, the door for you know some other uh, issues. Uh, the 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 statute would would create a, a special unit within the state attorney general's office. Uh, now, there are many different parts of the, of the of the federal government. Of, the Justice Department that uh, could be modeled uh, here. Also in the Justice Department is something known as the critical response team process. Uh, it's a non-litigation approach to the same problems that special litigation does. It's a collaborative process where a local police department recognizes that it has problems, it requests the assistance of the Justice Department in, in resolving those. And uh, the first one, I believe was the first one, was Las Vegas. It's a dynamite report. It's, I recommend it to, to everyone. Uh, it, looked, it focused on police use of, of deadly force. 
uh, it, it documented the problem, and it got into looking at, 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 at the history of shootings by examining uh, the, the recent cases, and you just learn a whole lot. And you learn about the, 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 the steps in a deadly force incident where different decisions by the officer, different decisions by commanders, could have resulted in a different outcome and avoided this the, the tragic uh, uh, loss of life. There, there are, was another uh, critical response team report in in on San Diego, which is a very good department that suddenly went way off the track. Uh, and there's one in Philadelphia, and I believe there's some others uh, currently uh, in in process. Uh, and then even on a even thinking even more broadly. Uh, there could be, you know, a, a parallel unit within the state attorney general's office, which would essentially be the, the justice assistance uh, office. Uh, so the situation is you've got a medium-sized city. Uh, the police department is, you know, hasn't had a very good record. There have been some problems. You get a new chief. That chief wants to do the right thing. Where does that chief turn for help? This would be a state-level uh, Response and there would be an office there that would help, you know, bring technical assistance to that department to improve the quality of policing across a whole range of things, uh, on just you know crime fighting, disorder, uh, everything. So uh, it could do more than uh, what what the, the current federal effort uh, does at the state level. The advantages: uh, first, it it expands the resources available. Let's assume every state. Uh, adopts my wonderful idea. Uh, it expands the resources by a factor of 50. Uh, uh, and, I, and I think, again, from the standpoint of, of the democratic governance, it's closer to the people. It's closer to the people of, of each state. And that uh, can be more responsive. It, it, it would have more, more confidence. And again, the legislative process of authorizing the statute would would build understanding, uh, alert people to police problems they might not be aware of, um, and also, you know, being closer, uh, it would there would be a, a faster response to a particular problem that uh, uh, came up. The uh, the problem, of course, is that not every state uh, think I had such a hot idea, and they wouldn't go for it, but but some would, and I think there would be then develop a body of experience, even if only ten or or 12 states did of, of some, some lessons learned from that. I'm confident that, that the net results will be good. Uh, and, and other states will then say, hmm, gee, we might want to think about that too. So it, it would lend some, some support uh, uh, to the effort. So anyway, uh, it's, it's a state level uh, approach to dealing with you know, systemic uh, police problems, whether it's shootings, uh, Surveillance, uh, militarization, and any problem that you know the people of that state think needs to be addressed. Thank you. So we want to try again. <laughs> I think so. All right. Sure. Oh, awesome. Good morning. I find it really interesting that uh, when I uh, mentioned to, to friends and, and colleagues that I was going to speak here today, I, I get the same reaction. Well, this is the Cato uh, Institute, an anti-police organization uh, by default. So it's interesting to hear from the other side. Um, my name is Max Guerin. I've been a Dallas police officer for uh, the last 23 years now. I'm the major over the violent crime section uh, of the Crimes Against Persons Division. So my units uh, investigate all the violent crime, uh, homicides, officer-involved shootings, and the like. Um, uh, and I'm thankful not to be the last speaker right before lunch. So I want to talk about accountability as culture, as part of police culture, uh, how we improve it and where it is right now. Um, I, I will tell you that culture is framed by the narratives that we talk about as police officers. Uh, the incidents involving Eric Garner, uh, Tamir Rice, Freddie Gray, and uh, in Chicago, Laquan McDonald, I think are, are 
excellent and timely springboards for engaging in that conversation. And I think conversations about uh, culture, police culture, police accountability, and misconduct are not inherently anti-police, they're anti-misconduct. They are anti-situations uh, that we as citizens uh, don't want uh, perpetrated on us by, by police officers that, that are acting against uh, our, our best interest. Um, when, when we hire you to become a police officer, uh, we begin to train you in this idea of hypervigilance. We may not use that, that term, but we will teach you that virtually anything will kill you. Uh, there are no routine traffic stops. We teach you to check the trunk when you go up and walk out in case there's someone that, that's, that, that's inside laying in wait. Why? Because it's happened before. It, it's not every traffic stop. It's not most traffic stops, but it, but it keeps you alive and it keeps you going and it gets you home at night. Um, and I think there is a divide, and I've written about this before, talking about body cameras specifically. There's a divide between what many officers see, good police officers, honest, hardworking officers, because of how we've trained them, and what citizens see and what citizens expect. Uh, uh, and I'll give you an example of Tamir Rice. If you look at that, that very tragic and unfortunate incident, there were, uh, just yesterday there were news accounts uh, that uh, even the experts disagreed. You had three experts, I believe, that, that said the shooting was justified, and, and then you've got uh, other experts that say, no, it wasn't. And I, I can kind of try to explain the divide uh, from a police perspective, not justifying the actions, because I, I'll stand here today and tell you that that, that shooting was, was not overall justified. Officers look at that and they put themselves in those situations, uh, not, wow, uh, what if necessarily, what if that was my son or what if that was my friend? What if that was me as the officer? Uh, and, you, and they separate uh, the driver officer in the Tamir Rai situation from the passenger officer situation. Uh, a very terrible tactical approach uh, and uh, one that put the passenger officer in a very untenable situation. I've read articles that contend that, well, we expect our police officers uh, to, to stop and look and, and consider that this is a teenager uh, and, and, and this may be a toy gun in that instant. And, and, and ladies and gentlemen, that's a mistake. Uh, what we need to be talking about to our officers is those reasonable alternatives that, that prevent you from getting into that situation, those appropriate tactical approaches, those appropriate considerations, uh, because it goes against human nature uh, because we train these officers that there is a, uh, there, there's a tactical lag time, that if I'm holding a gun and you're standing there as an officer and you've got your gun, I can shoot you before you can do anything, before you can draw. And so we, we, will, we will get nowhere if we try to counter that in that instant. We need to back our narratives up, start those narratives that we talk about with police officers well before that. What do we expect from, from teenagers? Uh, my brother is fond of saying teen brain. We expect them to make bad decisions. That's the whole point of being a teenager, I believe. And so officers are, are no different. We should expect uh, our officers to understand that. Um, I'll talk about briefly what we're doing in Dallas to try to address some of the issue, issues of, of accountability and transparency. I was very happy to hear uh, uh, Lynn talk about uh, the open data uh, initiative and, and what we've done. Uh, Chief Brown released uh, over 12 years of data involving officer-involved shootings, um, race and gender of the officers, uh, race and gender of the subjects, uh, the weapons that were used, narratives that talked about how, how those situations were handled, what happened during those situations. Initially, we provided very static graphs and charts um, because we weren't uh, dealing with an open data platform. Uh, what we've done in the last month and a half, two months, uh, is we have taken those static uh, graphs and charts and that data, uploaded them into an open data portal so that now you can go on uh, to uh, Dallas Open Data or go to our website, dallaspolice.net, and right there on the left-hand side, OIS data. Click that, and it takes you to our policy, uh, our philosophy, our, our, our statistics for the last 12-plus uh, years on officer-involved shootings. You can create your own visualizations. You can analyze that data and, and, and look at it as you will. Um, additionally, uh, robust community uh, input and partnerships. We, we formed uh, community groups to, to help guide us on, on policy, talking about what the citizens want uh, and what the citizens expect, and then what's realistic from, from a police department or police officers to be able to provide. Um, we've undertaken reviews of consent decrees, uh, and for those, uh, I'm assuming many of you understand what those are, uh, Department of Justice comes in, looks at a police department, looks at deficiencies in their policies, procedures, patterns and practices of how they deal with their citizenry. So there are lessons to be learned uh, from the other departments around the nation, and we've been very proactive in, in, in addressing those, identifying them, and, and trying to move forward. 
uh, with the with the the outcome of, of public service in mind, um, and additionally, uh, more recently, looking at uh, reviews on our policies and procedures in dealing with mentally ill. Uh, we are we are no different from any other big city in the nation in dealing with a, a staggering mental ill population uh, and and insufficient resources in the medical or psychological community to to deal with those. Um, and then we're, we're looking uh, to go forward with presenting, uh, again, statistical information uh, and uh, open data regarding officers that are assaulted and or injured. I think that's, I think that's important, an important dovetail to the, the officer-involved shooting information, uh, as well as use of force data. Um, I think it'll be really interesting, uh, to, especially if you consider that D Dallas is a department of about 3,400-plus uh, officers. The number of complaints uh, related to excessive and or inappropriate force year to date, 13. Uh, I think there are multiple variables as to what explains or what can account for that, um, not the least of which uh, is, is the current climate and, and how officers perceive uh, themselves. Uh, next, I want to talk about some literature that, that tends to, to, to support what I'm talking about. Um, uh, I'm a fan of research. I think there needs to be more done on my profession and, and on officers' behavior, cognition, and, and capabilities. I'll point to three, three texts. There, there are many uh, that, that are as good or, or better, but I think these are pivotal works. Uh, the work of Dr. Philip Zimbardo, Stanford University, The Lucifer Effect. Um, uh, Jonathan Haidt, he's a psychology professor and a professor of business ethics uh, uh, on the righteous mind and, and how our, our minds have developed uh, over time. And then emotional survival for law enforcement. enforcement. Uh, Dr. Kevin Gill Martin, uh, former law enforcement officer, has written some really interesting, uh, put together some interesting observations uh, backed by statistical analysis and, and research, empirical research, uh, to support this. Um, so, again, when we hire you, we teach you this hypervigilance, and you come to us as uh, uh, a brother, a sister, um, perhaps a mother or a father, a softball player, uh, a regular church member. You have many facets to your personality. And over time, if we're not careful as police officers, we will winnow that away from you. We'll put you on a deep night's uh, assignment, so you won't be able to play softball. You won't feel like doing that. You may not make your church group, and, and then you'll begin to see things differently. They won't understand. Uh, my friends and family, you know, you're, 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 the, you're always the, the joke, oh, hey, I, I don't want to have too much to drink. There's a police officer here. So that, that takes its toll over time, and we have to guard against that. We have to teach our police officers how to guard against that, because we need you, and we need them to be those, those many-faceted uh, individuals that we hired them to be, along with a police officer. And Dr. Zimbardo, I think, points out, points out uh, very uh, astutely that, that we often talk about bad apples. We will, we will point to these situations uh, that, that, that go viral on social media, and we will say, you know, that's a, that's a bad apple. Uh, the majority of police officers act appropriately and, and as we would like. And that's absolutely true that they do. Most of them do. But I would argue, as Dr. Zimbardo does it, it's, it's not bad apples, it's bad barrels. And what he means by that is it's bad situations that are allowed to exist, that, that take regular, normal human beings, such as um, uh, military officers that were vetted, trained, uh, went through psychological analysis, that were placed in charge of prisoners uh, in Abu Ghraib, and regular, normal college students that were placed in the Stanford prison experiment uh, to guard their fellow human beings under uh, uh, imagined circumstances. And we saw their normal selves and their behavior uh, deteriorate into sadistic uh, and, and un undesirable behavior. Um, so it's not surprising that when we have officers that, that identify primarily as police that have winnowed away, again, these, these facets of their personality, um, identifying as police officers. Dr. Gilmartin talks about how uh, the police chief in every department has the absolute authority to decide when you or I will wear our hats. And uh, we, he, can, he or she can say, you'll, when you get out on a traffic stop, you'll have to put your hat on. Officers that primarily identify as police officers and have gotten rid of these other facets of their personality, that it's, it's, it's something that's out of their control and it impacts their world, and it's, it's devastating. 
as, as silly as that sounds, um, if, if, if all you are is a police officer, and now I'm telling you when you have to wear your hat, uh, Gil Martin talks about how, how that can just eat at you. So we have to continue to, to invest in the health and well-being and the training of our officers to, to maintain those, those healthy mindsets and understand when things are out of their control and to deal with those sorts of things. Um, uh, Dr. Zimbardo talks about de-individuation uh, and anonymity. And in my research, when I wrote, writing my thesis, I studied uh, the uh, occupied movements and, and how, uh, in, in part, how that de-individuation tended to affect officers on, uh, online, on a protest line. We put you in riot gear. We put a helmet on you. You look virtually identical, whether male or female, to the officer to your right and to your left. Um, that, that is what I would characterize as a team negative consequence in certain circumstances. Uh, team positive, Cowboys win in the Super Bowl. Um, guys, come in. <laughs> I'll try to come up with a realistic example. Um, um, but my point is, is, is individuals taking on the team mindset, being able to accomplish something, a synergy, if you will, of participation. Um, team negative, you can point to, uh, you can point to the, uh, the officers and the firefighters on 9-11 that, 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 that took that de-individualized concept of, of team members, rushed into the World Trade Center, and uh, uh, did what we would hope that they would do, uh, to, sadly, w with the result. So there are, we have to be careful that, that in that de-individuation that we have strong leaders, uh, strong supervisors that can control as best they can that behavior and make sure that those officers are, continue uh, in their, say, their, their demonstration enforcement, uh, that they can uh, keep their mindset and, and keep their, their actions uh, in accordance with what we expect those officers to do. Um, I'll talk briefly about body cameras and cell phones as a disruptive technology. Uh, the television show Cops, uh, late 80s, early 90s, um, characterized or, or highlighted success stories. Uh, and make no mistake, the, the, the producers of the show uh, included examples of, of police departments that, the, that, that tended to put them in the best light. You, you didn't see the, the controversial shootings uh, on, on the Fox television network uh, as part of that show. Uh, there were certain agreements, uh, contractual agreements based on that. Um, so, but that, that changed some of the behavior, that changed some of the perception of what officers do. Uh, the in-car cameras gradually gave us a, a glimpse into what officers' behavior was like uh, on traffic stops and, and how they dealt with situations uh, as a training tool for, for officers as well. Uh, now you've got the, the, the ubiquitous uh, nature of cell phone video and cell phone cameras uh, that are giving you a glimpse into to, to the way some officers act uh, and have acted for some time, and, and it will continue to do so uh, until that balance, I, I believe, is reached and we change that behavior. Uh, uh, for that, again, I, I will stress a, a minority of the, of the officers, but yet not an insignificant uh, issue to deal with. Um, and I, I think as we go forward with, with body cameras, that, that we need to have more study on, on cognition and how, how officers' brains um, human beings' brains in, in general perceive threats, uh, make obs visual observations, how that differs from what may be captured on a body cam video. Uh, there's, there's a lot of discussion uh, uh, today, uh, again, going back to the earlier panel, about what, uh, what policy is, is, is best. Should we allow the officer to see the video beforehand, before he, he or she writes his statement, because the facts are the facts and the video is going to be what the video is? Or should, is there some medium? Should we wait till after they see that? Uh, and then the understanding uh, that, that the use of force is never pretty. It's never going to look good. Even a justified use of force is a violent physical action that, that even if uh, I sit here and, and explain uh, that this, this particular officer was justified, uh, even his, his or her approach, that, that when you watch the takedown or you watch that physical exertion, um, you're going to have this in interior feeling. Um, most of us will. That, well, that, that doesn't look good. That, that, that looks like it hurt, and it, it, it's, it, it will tend to, 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 to taint or, or color, perhaps, how we, how we perceive right and wrong uh, as far as officers go. Um, uh, 
then look at, I suggest we need to look at who are, who are we hiring and, and what, what, kind of, what kind of diversity of thought, diversity of mental process are we hiring in our officers. Uh, I, I, I submit that a, a number of departments uh, across the nation uh, are hiring a former military uh, or people with military background. Uh, why? Uh, they make great candidates. They're familiar with our paramilitary uh, system of, of uh, operation. Uh, they know how to follow directions. Uh, and in general, they've been, they've been vetted uh, through security procedures and, and whatnot. Um, uh, but Dr. Height talks about um, the, the, the foundations of, uh, of morality. And so I'll give you the example uh, of uh, uh, South Carolina and dealing with the student in the school. Uh, uh, if you're Facebook, if you're on Facebook and you're like mine, I'm amazed at the at the the, the polar the polarization of, of of my friends and family, for that matter. Uh, that that will sit there and, and talk, and they will point to the the, the teenage student again, teenagers. Uh, the, the teenage students' uh, uh, disrespect to the teacher, the, the teenage students' disrespect to the officer, and they will, they will use those arguments to justify the officer's actions. Um, uh, and, and that's because they, the, the teenager violated that authority subversion uh, moral foundation that, that, that bothers us. Um, and uh, then, then we've got others that will look at the officer's actions and say, no, he violated what we call the carrot harm foundation. Uh, moral foundation because he's supposed to take care of her. She's a teenager. She's a student. She's not expected to make good decisions. Um, I'd submit to you that we also need to, to look at our, our, our police departments and ask the question, at what point did we abdicate the, the ability to uh, stay out of the schools? Is, is, our, is our mission should it be such that we have school resource officers? I, I, I won't tell you yes or no, but I'll say that we need to have the dialogue and the discourse to decide whether that is, is what we want, or do we want the do we expect the administrators uh, and the teachers to, to deal with those situations or deal with those problems, um, uh, as well as the, the fairness cheating? I think is where we how we got into that. We, we talk about fairness and the fairness of the students uh, to uh, uh, receive that education. In conclusion, the way ahead, more education for officers, and I'm talking collegiate level education. I think we need to, to have a, uh, standards that, that expose our officers to a multitude of ideas and thoughts and, and engage them in those conversations. Um, we need to have more education to the public. We need to talk to the public about what our policies and our procedures are, make that easier for them to, to learn. Citizens Police Academies, uh, as we do in Dallas, are, are a great opportunity to engage and, and, and talk with the citizenry in that, uh, in that regard. Uh, our com community policing efforts, I think, because of the, it, it comes down, in my opinion, to communication, and those are excellent opportunities to communicate, uh, to deal with the citizenry pre-event. Social media gives us a great opportunity to do that, engage the citizens uh, before uh, the, the situations arise so that you build that, that community trust and, and, and understanding. Uh, and, and understand that, that the human brain is a story processor. It's not a logic processor. I could throw you, uh, flood you with statistics uh, and it would mean very little, but if I told you a story, as I've tried to do, uh, about how we train and, and teach police officers and how we go through events, that's what we do in the academy. We inculcate, inculcate officers into our culture that way by telling them stories, relating um, uh, our experiences, uh, and we need to teach our culture via the narratives that we, that we want to have retold um, as our officers' um, actions would, would direct. So I, uh, with that, I'll conclude. I look forward to the discussion. I appreciate your time and the opportunity. Thank you. Hey. Good morning, everyone. Um, thank you so much for coming to our panel. Uh, thanks to the Cato Institute for inviting us here today. Appreciate it. Wes, thank you for moderating. I uh, appreciate everyone sticking around before lunch. Um, okay, great. Uh, today I'm going to be presenting some work that I'm doing with Dan Nagan uh, at Carnegie Mellon, which takes a broader perspective on the notion of accountability. Uh, in particular, accountability, uh, ac police accountability to what we argue are two fundamental principles of policing. I think it goes without saying, as we've already spoken about, that this is a very tumultuous time for policing in the United States. 
deadly uses of force uh, by the police across the country have led to protests, heated debates, intense discussion, uh, and questioning of police tactics with the president himself convening a special task force to make recommendations for the reform of policing in America. Uh, even before Ferguson, I know Ferguson's kind of a, a match point, but even before Ferguson, citizens, police leaders, and scholars were calling for reform to make police more accountable, effective, and transparent. Questioning practices, as you recall, uh, such as aggressive order maintenance, policing, and stop, question, and frisk. At the same time, we still need the police uh, we still need the police, and we still need the police to do their job. They still have to deal with crime and disorder, and in some places, crime that is on an upward trend. As one resident aptly stated, as she described the situation in her neighborhood uh, in Baltimore, we need the cops, we don't need the violence from cops, but we need the actual cop duty in the presence of our community. We need that. Uh, these concerns uh, that she and others have raised have once again reopened a recurring and fundamental question about the role of policing in democratic society and thereby the mandate to which they are accountable for. That is, how can police maintain the community's trust and confidence while at the same time effectively prevent crime and keep citizens safe? Now, both of these objectives form, uh, in my view, the bedrock of effective policing in democracies. But in difficult times, discourse often uh, falls on one or the other, with the other receding in the background. Today, I think it's fair to say that the focus is much more on trust and confidence with citizens. But at other times, when crime is on the rise, when terrorism looms, the emphasis is on public safety. But it's important to remember that neither goal trumps the other, or is more important than the other, and both depend on each other. Uh, we argue in our essay that the current approach to policing is not structurally built to achieve this balance, and hence we argue that a reimagining of policing is needed. Toward this end, uh, we put together a seven-point blueprint guided by two principles which are grounded in decades of both research and law enforcement experience, uh, of which police are accountable to. The first principle, as I write here, is that crime prevention, not arrest, is paramount. Crimes averted, not arrests made, should be the primary metric for judging police success in meeting their objective of securing public safety. And the second principle, citizens' reactions matter. Citizen response to the police and their tactics for preventing crime and improving public order matter independent they really matter independent of whether or not they can achieve some crime control effect. Um, in other words, securing trust and confidence does not need to be justified by a crime prevention effect, nor should we assume that it can achieve it, as, as some scholars have, have remarked. We review at length the research supporting each principle in our paper. I'm happy to give that to anybody who would like to see it. We've just completed it. But let me highlight some key summary points from the research about each principle. We know, uh, with regard to principle one, we know from empirical research uh, that um, the crime prevention is not the focus of the police, that reaction and arrest continue to play a central role in training, patrol, investigations by definition, operations, police culture, as Max has already talked about, expectations from the public. There are no cop shows about crime prevention. Um, they're mostly about solving special cases and procedures. At the same time, research shows that arrest and also reacting to individual cases plays a marginal role in safety. My co-author, uh, Dan Nagan, his work on deterrence and crime control impact of arrest and punishment is key to this conclusion, emphasizing that deterrence can be best achieved by increasing the perceived risk of apprehension, which is different than the certainty of apprehension or the severity of punishment. We also know that arrest has high social costs, especially when you consider that the majority of arrests are for minor offenses. 
this includes cost to the police and courts, to offenders and victims, and we know from the mass incarceration literature to society more generally. And finally, there is a great deal of evidence that now supports that more preventative, proactive, targeted, problem-oriented, place-based strategies that are intended to stop crime from happening in the first place, thus averting arrests, are very effective. With regards to principle two, citizen reactions matter. We only have to see what's happening today to understand that citizen reactions matter. But let me highlight some key points from research that, it's, that is important to point out. First, there is a consistent and large racial divide, in particular between blacks and whites, on the overall satisfaction and trust of the police, with blacks feeling much less satisfied and much less trusting. This is not only the result of history, but also of modern disparities in the criminal justice uh, system for African Americans. We also have findings that policy and practice can alter citizen reactions to the police. For example, the research on procedural justice indicates that the way police interact with citizens can change their reactions to policing. Some of the research in the community-oriented policing arena holds promise with regards to improving community trust and confidence and reducing fear. Now, although these strategies may not have been shown to have any effect on crime, recall we argue that citizen reaction matters independent of its crime control impact. Grounding of reimagining of policing, therefore, uh, in, and police accountability in these two principles is very much evidence-based. However, moving toward these two principles simultaneously and in balance requires more than just research or more research. Uh, as a professor, I would always love to say more research, but we need more than just more research. We have to translate and institutionalize this knowledge into tangible adjustments to policing that lead to real outputs that achieve each principle without degrading the other. This is, as you might imagine, as the officers in the room uh, probably understand this very well, not an easy task at all. This requires fine-tuned surgical adjustments to fundamental and multiple systems of policing, as well as reconsidering our definition of what we think of as the craft of policing. These systems include things like professional development, deployment, accountability systems, managerial systems, technology, and I'm not just talking about the choice of technology, but considering the consequences of those choices on the balance between principles one and two. Also strategic systems and cultural systems which envelop uh, uh, the police agency as, as um, the major mention. Our seven-point blueprint arises from the system's perspective that changing one system or having a special policy or program, which the police have done in the past, to achieve a balance between these two principles is not enough because these systems, of course, are very much connected. They depend on each other, and they do influence police policy and outcome. Today, I only have a very brief moment to tell you about the blueprint items. Again, they are detailed in full in our paper. Our first suggestion is that police need to prioritize crime prevention over arrest through fundamental changes to patrol and investigative deployment systems and their support resources, not just through ad hoc programs. Just one of the many suggestions that we give in our paper is that patrol officers need to concentrate and target their efforts during the time in between calls for service to try to reduce call volume and thereby prevent crimes and arrests from happening in the first instance. This includes focusing on specific problems, people, places, and situations that are at high risk for crime opportunity and victimization, using strategies that we know are effective and lawful, but that are generally underutilized uh, in current deployment models. I think it's important to say something here about stop and frisk and aggressive order maintenance uh, policing, also sometimes referred to as broken windows arrest strategies, uh, both which we have considered to be proactive policing strategies in uh, the late 90s. With aggressive order maintenance using arrest for minor crimes, research indicates that these do not achieve principle one, 
Right? These not achieve principle one. With pedestrian stops, stop, question, and frisk, research has shown that this may sometimes achieve principle one and prevention, but at the possible cost of degrading principle two, not to mention many of these stops are, have been unconstitutional. So choices about deployment and how they are implemented have to be able to achieve both. And it's important to note, as the officers will tell you in this room, that these are not the only two choices for proactive policing. Our second suggestion supports principle two directly. Uh, it is that police should create and install systems that monitor citizen reaction to the police and routinely report results back to the public and also managing and line level officers. This was the, what the major was talking about in the slide where he had uh, go to OIC for this data. This data is not always available in most agencies. Um, Dallas is putting it up on their website, and that's fantastic, but it's not a regular practice. Like our first suggestion, is very underdeveloped. Let me give you an example. We have a, a developed incredible records management systems that allow us to record crime very well and calls for service very well. Uh, but there is no equal system that records information to adequately achieve principle two. So the crime records management system helps us achieve principle one, but not to achieve principle two. Not only do systems have to be developed to collect the data, but they also need to use it and be accountable to it. This means creating tangible feed feedback loops of these results to citizens and also officers, first-line supervisors, and trainers to dynamically adjust strategy. To achieve the first two blueprint items, police have to redefine their craft to both Sorry, let me make sure. I, to both the view prevention of crime and citizen trust and confidence as independently important rather than as trade-offs, and then to deliver on them. This adjustment can occur in various places, but the most obvious is in the choice of subject matters for uh, training and professional development, both formal and informal, the types of training that occur every day in, in a squad. We have to focus not only on training for lawful policing, for good procedures, for procedural justice, but also how officers should spend their discretionary time to achieve prevention and uh, appreciation of citizen reaction. Training is not the panacea, of course. Redefining craft, both philosophically and tangibly, also requires recalibrating organizational incentives. This involves recalibrating performance metrics and how they are collected in order to reflect the goals of crime prevention and attention to community reaction. And this means, and this is a difficult one, changing tests, rewards, promotions, even informal pats on the back, the way officers receive medals and what for. They rely on these metrics. Often, we're asking police to be proactive, but we don't judge them or reward them for it. A system closely connected to training, organizational incentives, and deployment is police accountability. Accountability encompasses a vast array of uh, legal, procedural, and organizational issues that have been uh, touched upon in this panel. But one vital dimension to advance our two principles is transparency. Improving systems of transparency requires increasing the availability of data and also police standard operating procedures and policies to the public not only related to police-citizen interaction, but also related to crime prevention policies and practices. Improving transparency may also require reassessing and possibly re-engineering systems of supervision, management, leadership, discipline, incident review that currently may impede the ability of agencies to effectively achieve balance of principles one and two. One major structural change towards these two principles is rethinking how analysts are deployed, viewed, and operationalized in, uh, in policing. Currently, they often play a role in investigations, which is an arrest-based strategy uh, activity, or administratively, generating statistics for ComStat or uh, managerial type meetings. Advancing principles one and two requires a more strategic activation of our crime analysts. Uh, analysts directly uh, need to be directly involved in developing problem-oriented policing tactics 
evaluating tactics for effectiveness and citizen reaction, being involved in analysis of the accountability and internal health of the police organization, including analysis of use of force, complaints, even abuse of overtime or sick leave, for example. Managers also need to be trained in how to use and value analysis and incorporate it into strategies. We have many more suggestions within each of our blueprint items uh, that we discuss in our paper at length, but I'd just like to say in closing that while we've learned a great deal in the last four decades of research, there are still gaping holes on how to most effectively achieve principles one and two. Reimagining policing will need even more systematic study on not just what works and what doesn't work, but also how to implement effective crime prevention and trust and confidence building strategies, including what types of adjustments to systems work best to balance our principle. Achieving prevention of crime, maintaining high levels of trust and confidence is a very detailed and surgical effort. And we wrote this paper because we believe that police are not impervious to change especially when we rethink how police craft and systems are, are aligned to principles one and two. Thank you very much for your time and look forward to discussion. Right, so let's have one more round of applause for everybody. This is really, really good. Yeah, yeah, good. Just, just, just take a chance to say that much of what uh, Major Guerin talked about uh, came to my attention, I think, two and a half years ago. This has been in development for a while. And I thought it was so good and so important what the Dallas Police Department was doing. I put it in the, the first opening pages of my book on police accountability. So I really you know, commend it. It's, it's clearly what you talked about. It goes far beyond what was in, I think, it was the Chief's eight-point plan. Um, uh, a reporter brought that to my attention. Uh, so I mean, this is what you know, a really professional and forward-looking police department ought to be doing. Excellent. So I want to go ahead and open up to questions. We do have a microphone, and if what you could do is uh, when you get the, when you call on you, we get you the microphone. If you could, uh, you know, give us your name and affiliation or whatnot, so everyone watching at, along at home uh, can go ahead and get a question. We'll start over here on the left, and we'll just kind of move our way across. Hi, I'm Damon Brown. I'm a retired Pittsburgh police officer, and I work the State Department right now. So um, I want to uh, acknowledge you, Major, for talking about leadership and culture as it opposed to accountability. Because what happens is a lot of time we ignore the leadership involved. You know, a typical patrol officer many times just wants to do the right thing. And when we look at leadership, you know, we have to ask, does leadership overtly or covertly uh, um, affirm this behavior is what's happening on the street. And so um, I think that we need to really look at leadership when we talk about accountability. And Professor, you did mention um, when leaders get in place, they want to know how they can do the right thing. Well, I mean, sometimes doing the right thing doesn't mean engaging into uh, autocratic or an autonomous or even a self-protective leadership strategy. Okay, so, you know, we'd like to see more leaders with um, value-based leadership, you know, transformation leadership, and uh, different things like that. So my question is to you, how do we ensure that we're getting the proper leaders and, and leadership within police departments when these um, positions arise? Is that addressed to me or to? I think, I think it's to you. Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I think, I think one of the things that needs to happen is, is that in, in the, the selection of police chiefs needs to, needs to be an open process with, with plenty of opportunity for community input so that people who are knowledgeable about the best practices and what's going on around the, around the country have a chance to weigh in so that the search committee itself can, can formulate its, its criteria uh, in that regard. I think that's, I mean, there's, and I don't know whether there's still departments that only hire from, from within. I think that's not necessarily the best uh, uh, approach, but we really need to, to make sure that, that the new ch the, a new chief you know, is informed about the current best practices and where the field of policing is going. I think that's a great statement, and I think you can transfer it also down the line. Uh, 
hiring process for a police chief, very brief, uh, may last a few months. But if you look at the, the leaders that you're cultivating with your own, within your own department, are you investing in their training? Are you investing in the kinds of training that's going to elicit the kind of behaviors that you want? And then are you talking about the behaviors that you want uh, from those leaders? Do you, do you start with your your police officers, your sergeants, your your lieutenants, and and do you have do you mentor them? Do you do you bring them up in the way? And that, that I think that in a very broad nutshell is how you how you try to accomplish that. Go go ahead, right up front. Gabe Goldberg, technology writer and volunteer with Fairfax County Police. I have a question for Professor Walker. Is there a conflict between the states as laboratories, as you describe them, and police industry efforts such as International Association of Chiefs of Police, Police Executive Research Forum, Kalea, to standardize practices and to propagate best practices across the country? The other question is, isn't there a risk of politicizing uh, too much what goes on in, in different states by having that kind of legislative activity deciding what, what, what to go on? And aren't there risks of inconsistencies across the country? Isn't it confusing to have different police practices in the 50 states? Well, to answer the first part of your question, there's no conflict at all. The professional associations should articulate, you know, general standards and, and identify best practices. The, the kind of, of, of state uh, agency that could investigate misconduct is, would be to investigate departments that are not doing those things and have a lot of you know, problems that result from it. Sounds good. I'll pass on the second half of your question. <laughs> Let's go. We'll go down here in the front as well. Herb Rose, currently unaffiliated. Uh, I'll address my question primarily to Professor Lum. Um, considering the situation that occurred in our neighbor to the north, Baltimore, this past summer uh, with the death of Freddie Gray uh, and the investigation and subsequent arrest of some of the officers um, after that, um, we noted that... Uh, there seemed to be a less enthusiastic um, policing occurring in Baltimore, which uh, led to the inverse relationship between lower arrests and increased crime. Uh, my question is, is this, uh, since we know about it here in Washington, probably largely because it's made local papers and news programs, is any of this occurring in other parts of the country where there have been officers arrested? Uh, is this a trend? And how do you correct for this in the future? Um, wow, that's, uh, that's a lot of hard questions all rolled into one. Um, look, I think first let me just say that I don't think we've come down to um, uh, a, a strong statement yet, or at least I have not seen anybody, an academic, talk about this in terms of a causal connection between uh, homicide rate increase in Baltimore City and uh, uh, what happened um, with Freddie Gray and the arresting of the officers and now their trials. So I'm not quite sure if that there is a causal connection, and certainly that's something that people need to be studying. Rick Rosenfeld, for example, at the University of Missouri at St. Louis is looking at this actual issue. Um, in terms of, but you have a broader question, uh, which is, you know, are officers essentially pulling back, right? I, I think that's a lot on a lot of people's minds uh, in Baltimore City. Having been a patrol officer and a detective in Baltimore City, uh, it you know, it's always possible that they might say, hey, you know, we're not going to uh, uh, police as much because of everything that's happening. But the problem with this is that it's a more of a symptom uh, than anything else. It's a symptom of a belief of a limited policing toolkit. In their minds, uh, and this is what I meant when talking about the craft of policing, they see policing as a, vi a very specific thing. Um, in Baltimore City, one of the things that is very common for patrol officers to do is stop and frisk. That You call them field interviews, ped stops, whatever you want to call them. And many of these stops are unconstitutional. They're looking for drugs. They're not necessarily looking for guns, right? However, we also know, as I mentioned in my paper, 
that some, uh, there's some evidence that stop and frisk in violent crime areas can help reduce violent crime. Okay? So this is a really, um, I don't really have a good answer for you, uh, except to say that I'm not sure it's because of the Freddie Gray incident, but I also know that it's also a, a reflection of kind of the limited things that police have in their toolkit, or they believe they have in their toolkit to fight crime. We need to retrain the police. We need to redefine what the craft of policing is. This goes back to the gentleman's question about leadership. That craft is connected into that leadership. We need different types of leaders now that envision policing differently, that are educated differently, that have different knowledge about what is effective in policing. I know that's not really a great answer to your question, um, but I would not say necessarily with any certainty right now that those two things are connected. Yeah, I'd like to add to that, and it goes to, uh, again, how officers identify. And if, as she's talking about, you see that narrow focus of, of your purpose uh, as a police officer, then the, it opens the door, uh, I'd argue, that you begin to feel defensive, and you begin to look at websites like police misconduct as anti-police. You look at the media coverage, and you internalize that as the the, the nation is is against uh, the profession of policing. The whole the whole article series on is there a war on police? It becomes very easy to 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 conceive that that officers. Hey, I, I don't want to be the next viral video. I don't want to be the next subject of that. But if, as the professor, I think very very adequately articulately points out more education, more facets to your personality, more understanding of the global picture and a different approach to how you police and see your role, um, perhaps even bordering on that idealistic. Uh, I, I tell people I'm an idealistic pragmatist when it comes to policing. When I think of police officers, I, I, want, I, I envision my, my son and my daughter needing help from a police officer and going to that police officer and getting that help. But I'm also a, a pragmatic in that I know we are all human beings. We make mistakes, and, and there will be people that will not live up to our expectations. Go ahead, right in the front. Hi, hi, Max. My name is Dee. I'm a lawyer here in Washington, D.C., and I live in Montgomery County, Maryland, just nearby. To become an officer, Montgomery County officer, you have to have a college degree and 28 weeks in the academy. That's really that's like six months in the academy. To me, I think it's a time spent. Don't you think maybe we should have? Longer time in the academy? Well, you know, departments uh, across the country are grouping uh, with that idea. And, and we're looking, uh, Dallas is looking at, 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 should we shorten our academy? We're at 32 weeks. Um, so uh, 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 the, the initial 17, 18 weeks, somewhere in there, is teaching directly to the, the T-Coal test, Texas Commission on Law Enforcement. What, uh, what information does the state expect you to know? And then the rest of that time? policies and procedures of the Dallas Police Department, cultural awareness, sensitivity, de-escalation, um, communication techniques, and, and so forth. Uh, you get to a point, my, my academy was 29 weeks. I love the people that were in my academy, but at 29 weeks, I hated them. <laughs> you, you, so you come to a point in, in, that, in that environment where enough is enough, and, and I don't know the exact answer how, how, you, how you quantify that, how you, how you know when you've reached that. I think an important part of the, this equation is not just the, the pre-surface academy training. There's also the field training program, which is Service. extremely important. Right. We, I've just learned recently that New York City Police Department doesn't have one. You know, there, I, I can remember, I have it in my file somewhere, there was a, the model policy, the San Diego Police Department's field training program. That was from the 70s, late 70s. So New York City Police Department is backward on that. The other part, which I think is, is just extremely important, is the in-service training. The annual in-service training, which which you know reinforces and, and and brings officers back to 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 the you know the best level, the California Post System, police officer standards and training, they have a special mandatory training at least once every two years on what they call perishable skills. Perishable skills. You know, I looked at that. I said that's a very interesting way of putting it. You know, these are the skills you lose. And it covers use of force. And it covers communication skills, how to talk to people. I mean, these are the critical stuff. So that annual in-service training is, is, is an essential part of, of really building a professional department. The last word? Uh, professor? Well, I'm getting a red light, so let's get one more in if you want to do right in the middle there. 
going. Either one of them. <laughs> I'm not going to be the one to pick. I'll let her get in trouble. Hi there. Sorry. My, my name is Luke Hill, and I'm with the uh, Brookings Institution. Um, Dr. Lum, you mentioned uh, kind of this balance between uh, kind of like crime control aspects of policing and the crime prevention part. Um, it seems to me that using kind of CompStat metrics like arrests and, and things like that are a lot easier to quantify uh, in terms of public safety when in reality they are probably not the best measure to use. I was wondering if you could comment uh, just a little bit more on the metrics that are being used in order to measure uh, crime prevention. Let me let me say that some CompStat uh, meetings are you are measuring crime prevention. They're looking at crime going up and down. Uh, they're looking at trends in crime. What I mean by what I meant by my comment regarding CompStat is that analysts are being used to generate this these kind of numbers or statistics. It's a quantification. Let me just say first of all, quantification is not bad. <laughs> okay, um, sometimes quantification is very good. But it's the way that the quantification is used. So if you're generating, okay, yesterday we had 50 robberies and today we have 60 robberies, okay, that's fine. But what are you doing about those robberies? How are we rewarding officers who are proactively trying to reduce those robberies? What are the effective strategies that we can do to reduce robberies and hotspots and these types of things? I mean, that, that is what the key issue is. When we're measuring prevention, we could also be very quantitative and look at numbers and how they go up and down. But we also really need to see and to judge and to reward and to record how officers are using their discretionary time. Yes, that's going to take a little bit more than, for the officers in the room that are familiar with this, the, the monthly uh, assessments that an officer might get you know, on a green sheet of paper saying, yes, they did their job, they did this and that. It's going to require a little bit more articulation about the types of things the officers are doing, you know, the types of people that they're reaching out to, the groups that they're working with in the community, uh, other types of measures. Thinking about those measures it should be the subject of ComStat meeting. Okay, so it's not just about short-term crime trends or even long-term crime trends, because I guarantee you they will go up and down. <laughs> crime will go up and down. Um, but what's really important is the quality of policing and how we write about it, how supervisors understand what their 7 to 10 person squad is doing every day and being able to articulate that. Yeah, that is harder than just saying 10 or 5, you know, something like that. Excellent. How about we do one more round of applause for a great panel? <laughs>